Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricard Silvestre. And today I'll be talking with Joanna Titovich. Joanna is a professor of economics at the University of Warsaw and leader of the group for research in applied economics. And we're going to be talking about how to find better ways to use human labor in a technological advanced society. And before we start, I want to express our appreciation to our friends at Visegrad Insight because I met Joanna at a Visegrad Insight Breakfast edition. And after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by ELF for this month of September. I'm here with Joanna Tirovich. Joanna, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be invited, Ricardo. Oh, it's very good to have you here because I saw Joanna on the Keeping Pace with Digitalization, our friends at Visegrad Insight, and you brought up some really interesting points on that particular moment, which I would like to extend here with you. So starting with that, one thing that you said that I thought was really cool, and you said, well, some concepts that we use in the area of economics could get a little bit tricky, and sometimes we don't do that work of explaining this to our audience, so it could get confusing. So let's start with that. Tell us some of the concepts that we, you would like to describe a little more for our listeners. Well, I understand we're limiting our conversation today to digitization, automation, because otherwise we could never finish. But uh, let's let's stick to this uh, specific topic. So um, most of you have heard this term digitalization or automation. And the way media talk about it and the way a lot of uh, pace setters talk about it or trendsetters talk about it, they usually pick up a case of um, some particular production process or service process that is right now done entirely by machines, which in itself is a true fact. I mean, they probably describe something that they've seen with their own eyes or at least uh, read about um, that is fact-based, but it's not actually referring to what we mean by digitization or automization in the economy. Because in the economy, Digitization is not really a race between human and a machine. It's more of finding better ways of using humans. And this is because we understand digitization, we, I mean economists, as a process that allows to exploit those types of activities or those types of tasks that humans will indefinitely be more competitive against with the machine. So let me start by describing what we mean by, by jobs. Jobs are not jobs. I mean, most of us would say, I'm an economist, I'm a journalist, I'm a uh, you know, professor at the university, I'm a minor, <laughs> I'm a barista. People talk about themselves in terms of jobs, but economically speaking, people are not jobs. Jobs are tasks. They're actually bundles of tasks so if you think about a barista, a barista who works in a huge network um, of coffee places does a very different job than a barista who runs his own small around the coffee corner. Why? Mm -hmm. Because the barista who runs the coffee shop around the corner has to do also orders and accounting and write down profit loss statements every year 
So in addition to making coffee, the barista around the corner has to do very many tasks that in a network coffee place are done by back office uh, army of workers. Logistics is solved differently and all this stuff. Now, if you think about the job of the barista around the corner, if you give the barista around the corner a computer with an internet connection and an online accounting system that does everything for him, then this person is benefiting from automation because much less of his time is being consumed by doing uh, repeated routine tasks of, for example, putting invoices on the system and making monthly VAT statements. Meanwhile, the barista who works in a coffee place can partly benefit from having a potentially more sensor loaded coffee machine, but it's still gonna make coffee and that's it, right? It's not going to do all these tasks. So that's what I mean by bundle of that, bundles of tasks. And for the purpose of, of synthesis, we divide tasks into three groups. There's tasks that we call routine, which is a very confusing concept because routine is not mundane. Routine means that it's very easy to codify mm -hmm. what and how should be done. For all intents and purposes, doing VAT statements is routine, but doing coffee is not. Because pressing this little thing that organizes all the uh, coffee grains in the little you know, part of the machine that actually then pours the coffee, that requires different pressure, different angle, different everything every time. So telling a machine how to put coffee in this little cup that then goes in a machine that you can press a button is very, very complicated. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's very complicated. Humans do that without thinking about it. But the machine would need to get a clear, explicit, and comprehensive code on what to do on each moment. So doing coffee seems like a mundane task, but is not really a routine task by our standards. Meanwhile, there's a lot right. of tasks that are perfectly routine. Um, a great example of a task that is very routine, but most of us would think it's a complicated task is accounting. When there is a system, so it's perfectly codified, what kind of expense goes on which particular type of account were in the books, you don't need a human to do that month after month after month, even though to set up the whole system, you need to have some uh, different type of skills. So the first part is the routine. Other examples of things we humans consider mundane or routine is uh, doing sandwiches. Very difficult to teach machines how to do sandwiches. Um, you know, watching your kid. A very mundane task. You have to do it every day until they grow up. Yet it's very difficult to tell machine how to do that, right? Um, so even you know watering your flowers is a mundane task, but it's not really routine. So routine, non-routine is the first type of dichotomy we analyze. The second type of dichotomy or um, uh, synthesis we we look at is um, whether a task requires certain cognitive skills. So do you have to learn something to be able to do that? Or is it something that, um, you know, is, is just done automatically? So for example, driving a car is medium level of cogn 
cognitive requirement, but designing an IT system is high level of cognitive requirement, right? Mm -hmm. uh, finger dexterity is certain level of cognitive requirement in order for your fingers to be able to perform some very uh, otherwise mundane, but still cognitively requiring tasks, uh, you need to learn certain level of dexterity it doesn't come naturally to, to human beings so uh, cognitive non-cognitive non is the second dimension the third dimension is whether tasks that are performed on a specific job require interpersonality one example that you may think of as interpersonality it is technically possible right now to go to a chain sandwich place and just order from the machine you don't have to talk to a human to order a burger or you know, milkshake. Um, so that particular type of job, which previously was interpersonal, you would think about people at McDonald's, Burger King, or Wendy's as waiters, is right mm -hmm. now no longer necessary, right? But it's impossible to make the machines make the sandwiches. <laughs> just, to think, just to give you examples, that, and it's impossible to replace bosses on those places. So there's some tasks that, that require interpersonality, and some tasks that with certain degree of technology no longer need to be interpersonal. Machines, and before we talked about machines, we use very different dichotomies. So we would say whether it's a high skill or low skill job. And that definition or that division, that delineation is useless when you want to talk about automation, because very many jobs that we would normally consider low skill are actually very high on interpersonality or very high on dexterity and therefore cannot be re easily replaced by machines. Meanwhile, there is some scope for tasks that are being performed at what we considered high level jobs that can much better be done by machines. So forget about high skill or low skill jobs, forget about jobs per se, think about tasks and how these tasks bundle into what we call jobs and what will be the changes to those bundles that we do on the job. So let me give you one final example. So my mom was a teacher. And when she started uh, working as a teacher, there were no computers or computers were not popular. So when she was making transparencies for her kids at school, she would actually have to manually write down with the pen on this transparent, translucent thing that you put on a projector. Uh, so every time she wanted to improve on anything, like change one graph or change a few words, she would have to physically sit down and rewrite the whole slide. Mm -hmm. Now come computers. What do teachers do when they want to improve on their slides? They change that one word, which means that the mundane part of the work that used to be very time-consuming is completely gone. So they can allocate more of their time and effort to different types of tasks that are related to teaching because clearly rewriting transparencies year on year is not the type of work we would consider teaching, right? But that was one of the elements of the whole bundle of tasks that the teachers had to do. So computers can greatly improve on productivity where they can help us replace the stuff that you would otherwise take a lot of our routine time, such as rewriting transparencies, but they cannot figure out what to write on transparencies. And hence, um, there's no race between humans and machines. There's just race on how to make humans better with the machines. So let's drill down now after the concepts on what are the intersections between these things and 
the people that are listening to us and are thinking, am I a high skill, low skill? What kind of bundle of tasks do I have? So grabbing this, which just mentioned, that goes these three dimensions, the routine, the cognitive skills, the interpersonality, how this affects tasks and the bundle of tasks. What do you think then it is the most important thing for people to know how much digitalization then is affecting the labor market? So it's actually a very uh, profound and a very complicated question to answer because um, people are, I mean, humans are humans, so they differ in responses. So some teachers, when computers were brought in, said, hooray, I don't have to rewrite my slides. Whereas some others said, oh my God, what am I going to do right now? Now, this other group this, oh my God, what am I going to do right now? Uh, this is the, the, the type or the, the, the share of population on, on every occupation currently that requires some guidance on how they should adjust their own activities given availability of new technologies. So not everybody is going mm -hmm. to figure out by themselves how best to use available technology. And it's been well known on corporations, which is why they have training programs and implementation of technology or new technology always involves uh, the stage of implementation. It's not just designing something new, it's actually teaching people how to use this new thing. But uh, so, so socially, we're really bad in, in introducing technology. So consider when the banks, uh, for example, automize certain activities, they just tell their clients one day, you know what, you, you don't come to our uh, outlet around the corner anymore because we closed it down because right now you can do everything on an app from your phone. And again, some people are super happy because they consider that a huge saving of effort and time. And some people are, oh my God, what am I going to do right now? And unless we as society are able to provide this group uh, with assistance and how to adjust to, to changes, then there's going to be a growing digital divide. But leaving that aside, there are some consequences that we've already observed and that we can um, um, analyze and present to people and, and therefore also inform policy on what are the potential consequences of optimization. So what we've seen in um, advanced Western European countries and predominantly in the United States is that optimization makes middle range jobs disappear. What I call by middle range jobs is not actually middle level of skills, but middle level of wages. In the middle level of wages, you had a mixture of some people doing routine jobs or having high routine intensity on their jobs, but also people doing all kinds of high dexterity, low routine as a job. So those second type are still there, consider a masseuse. But the first type is dramatically decreased which makes middle of the income distribution virtually decline. There is much less people in the middle of the income distribution. And jobs are intensifying or increasing in the upper tail and in the very lower tail of the income distribution. Now, the increase in the jobs in the upper tail distribution of the income distribution makes sense to most of us intuitively because we need all those people who come up with all those new ideas on how to use technology. And these are the people in high end of the income distribution. Now, the low end of the income distribution is on the one hand, an income effect. So if an IT person is becoming richer, 
uh, that person is more likely to be able to afford uh, house help and uh, gardener and all that kind of stuff. Jobs that are not subject to automation, they are not at risk of being automized, but demand for those jobs is increasing as there is more people with high incomes. And the second type of jobs that are increasing at low, low end of income distribution are the jobs that will eventually be automized. But at this point, humans are just so much cheaper than computers that it's so much better to do that with the work of humans than with the work of computers. Let me give you an example. It is super expensive to teach a computer how to lay tiles and to do plumbing and electricity. So we're still having a lot of construction workers, not because this work cannot be done automatically, but because doing that automatically is simply so much more expensive than doing it with workers, with human labor, that it just makes no sense business-wise. But eventually we're going to figure out a way to make plumbing and uh, electricity and you know, decor automatically. We're going to do that by simply going back to something that is um, has a very bad reputation, but eventually people who remember that reputation will die. And that is prefabricated um, construction. And that will destroy jobs for low skill, uh, for low income construction workers, right? So these are the processes we've observed. These processes have had employment consequences. These processes have had also huge impact on wage inequality. So when you read all those dramatic uh, coverages of growing income inequality in the United States, in the UK, in France, you shouldn't think about Jeff Bezos becoming so incredibly rich, but about people in the middle of the income distribution losing their current or the previous jobs position and having to uh, understand that their jobs have to go down, their incomes have to go down. The disappearing middle is what stands behind the increasing uh, income inequality. And the way to address that is obviously to somehow facilitate the process of job changes. There's no need why people with middle level income and middle level um, skills, as you would say in the old terminology, should only find lower uh, status jobs if properly administered social policy, labor market policy can help individuals acquire those cognitive skills that are needed for them to make use of technology instead of lose to technology. And that's something that, for example, is very effectively performed in Germany. When you, when you mentioned this mobility or lack of mobility, therefore, of people changing in the scale of higher skilled jobs to lower skilled jobs and that vanishing middle that you just mentioned. There was a sentence that you used that would very much want to go back to it, which is educating people. So what is your perception as a specialist in this area? Are we doing a good job at it? We're doing a bad job. We're not doing any job at all. What's going on on that? I think we have a, a 19th century type of education in the 21st century world, and that means we're doing a very bad job. The 19th century um, features that I would refer to are that we consider education to be a one-in-a-lifetime 
type of event. So you go to school, then you go to high school, then you go to university, and then is the and then this is it. And uh, the second feature that is 19th century about it is that we consider education to be a highly specialized type of activity that we do in life. So the only way you can educate yourself after you graduate is if you do postgraduate studies. Now, that's not a way to go, given that technology is changing around us in incremental rather than radical ways. So an example is you had a television set, then it became a flat screen television set, then it became a flat screen television set with internet access. And um, a lot of people are still treating the television as if it was the old television, only it looks flat. They haven't noticed this incremental, from their perspective, change then it's right now actually a very powerful computer with internet access that you can do much more from than just watch your, your evening channel. So what I'm saying is education, because technology is, uh, quote unquote, attacking us from all spheres of life all around us, uh, education has to be an instant, instantaneous effort across very many domains rather than something we think of as you know, this is done at schools or at the universities, or maybe if you go to a training program on a specific new thing. Um, and humans have so far, because they have, we've been socialized to go to school and then that's it, right? You've got your diploma and you do your work, but you don't learn more. Humans are really bad in adopting new technologies. We're bad in adopting new technologies as organizations. We're also bad in adopting new technologies at our homes. Um, in our daily life and facilitation of this process requires huge effort from governments uh, that they are not doing so far. So one example that comes to my mind is, um, I don't know if you've been to India, Ricardo, but um, I was uh, amazed when I was in India. So Europeans, when they are public transportation, if they do anything rather than just stare around, they sometimes read tabloids, maybe they do crosswords, but that's it. Now, go on public transportation in India, which is of course not the general average Indian person, uh, and there's huge issues with literacy in India, but an average Indian on public transportation solves mathematical puzzles that are printed on every daily newspaper. You don't have to buy them separately as we buy Sudoku things. They're actually printed on every daily newspaper, and you can win money if you solve them correctly. And that's a way that makes people practice their mathematical skills, even when they're not actually, you know, professional mathematicians. Um, that's a super universal thing. In I mean, I, I've only been in a couple places of, of India, but it struck me as, you know, you get on a plane and everybody's solving Sudokus or other uh, mathematical puzzles. Now, uh, of course, Sudoku is a simple one, but there's a lot of uh, them. So, there's going to be a need for incredible ingenuity on the side of governments on introducing those ways for people to learn all the time. We've got cell phones so far, we're using them to watch TV series, which is of course okay, it's a part of consumption. But if we're able to come up with a um, equally attractive as Netflix pattern, to make people learn something on the way rather than just watch a TV series. There's no need to make them, you know, one is evil and one is good. It's just the question of proportions, right? We need some of this and some of that. 
and um, th that that will automatically uh, change things a lot. We don't have the luxury, unfortunately, to wait for the next generation to be able to do this kind of stuff. This is a fascinating point because intuitively, we think that we are very tech savvy. One of the conversations that we normally see on this area, for example, for elderly people, how to get to know technology, how to use technology to their benefit. And there's a lot of discussion. How can we do that? How can we make that happen inside the European Union in each member state? But then you're extending now and saying that is a present need also on adults and young and the younger generation. My students are perhaps quite knowledgeable on stuff that I don't care about. But if I tell them to do something in a text processor, they're using it as if it was a, a typing machine. They've never seen a typing <laughs> machine in their entire life, but they're using it the same way my grandfather's, my grandparents' generation. Now you need a new line, so you press enter, you need some space, so you press a lot of space. They don't learn that this is a computer. Uh, some of them actually use a calculator built in their mobiles to put in results in, in spreadsheets rather than use formulas in spreadsheets. So the idea that this younger generation is so tech savvy, you know, my generation, because we didn't have computers, we had to learn them, so we learned them the right way we kind of plunge the younger generation, we think they're tech savvy, so we kind of plunge them, sit them in front of the computer, you know how to do that, but they don't know how to do that. And unless they're actually taught how to do that, they're not using computers in a way that increases their productivity because typing solutions on your mobile to then put them on the spreadsheet is not increasing your productivity, right? So you're not doing the thing why technology is being designed for. So. That's an issue that has to be addressed as well, of course. That's a great point. And for us that like statistics and to our listeners that maybe did, never came up across this examples that Joanna was mentioning, for example, when you do statistics, you can easily press a button on a statistic software and you'll spit out the information, but then you will have someone asking you, what, what kind of question did you ask the computer? Do you know what question did you ask the computer? Because... The fact that you have a result doesn't mean that you have an answer to your question. So this is a, some good examples that you, you come up. Now, for the last couple of minutes, the, the high skills, low skills uh, duality that we're just mentioning. And as you so rightfully said, some of the jobs that are uh, getting touched by increased digitalization and robotization are actually higher skill jobs. So when we're talking about that divide where we have the vanishing middle, but it looks to me that the top is also under threat. Do you agree? You want to elaborate a little bit on that? So you probably, when you say high skill, you probably mean college degree. Am I right? Yes, we're talking about that kind of higher cognition kind of functioning that it may look that it's secure from a machine doing that job, but more and more on the medical uh, area, on architecture, on uh, even arts, we have more and more computers being a part of the process. So do you think that it's something that will have a wave that we cannot stop? Or is it is, as you said, human contribution is still cheaper than computer contribution? So I think there is a couple of points to write here, but I, I don't think there's... Um 
many empirical people who would have a definite answer to your question. So there's some pros and some cons and um, what's the final balance? I think we're gonna have to wait and see. So the first thing that is there is that um, in, in high, high, tasks requiring tertiary education or college degree can very often be very, very routine which means if we're able to automize them, there will be less demand for time on those jobs. Those jobs can go to do something else, uh, but uh, because those people have also other skills and they will be less burdened with doing the type of tasks that computers can do much faster and cheaper. Um, one such example is HR in corporations. HR looks after you know paychecks and compensations and benefits and making sure that your hourly count is okay and all this stuff, which is obviously much better done with machines once this process is um, in, uh, in digitalized, let's just call it this way, uh, in whatever form, which releases people who have studied HR to design better training programs, to have more friendly atmosphere, and do all those stuff for which they usually don't have enough time because they're so buried in, you know, counting how many hours you have actually been on the job last week or last month. So that's an example where you could easily see that high skills are partly replaced, but to the benefit of all parties involved. I mean, I don't know any HR person saying, I actually love counting hours. So. So everybody's benefiting. Workers get a high quality service and where it really matters. And those who do the service, HR people, are less burdened with the kind of stuff they didn't like. Another example that you brought up is, is doctors. Um, if we're able to make machines more efficient in giving medical advice than humans, then, of course, um, it's going to reduce demand for humans no matter what. And it's going to potentially improve the benefits uh, to the to the patients. Now, one example that people often give in this context is that humans are really bad in dealing with bad news coming from human doctors. Bad news coming from computers. I think we're even worse at dealing with that. So if a computer would tell you, you know what, you have to go through chemo, but you've got about 5% chance and will not smile in the end, then a cancer patient may be less um, satisfied with that sort of medical service than talking to a human doctor who's going to put a hand on the shoulder or smile and say, we're going to fight and stuff like this, right? So um, we're really, really bad in saying, in talking to computers and communicating with computers. And therefore, even if computers are right now uh, more efficient in, for example, uh, diagnosing some types of radiologist uh, photos and stuff, it is really difficult for me to imagine that we're going to soon have automized, fully automized uh, diagnosis. So that's going to be more like an HR scenario where a radiologist is going to get assistance from a computer, but not replacement from a computer. Unfortunately, we're getting to the end of our time, but I'm going to ask you to please come back to the podcast because this interaction, and I just, you just mentioned many times, which is the interaction between 
what is to be human, what is to be a machine, and then what is the relation between a human and a machine. And now we're adding another layer, which is the consumer. Meaning that a consumer, when you just said that a consumer will prefer to talk with a human than talking with a machine. And now more and more we have all kinds of services that are already automatized and we're talking with a person and we're actually going through a Turing test. We don't even know that we're doing that because we're talking with a person that it's not a person, it's a computer. And how people react to that. And my question to you on a future podcast is... How will that be a way of humanity to reclaim a certain position inside this system and say, no, I don't want to talk with a computer, I want to talk with a human. That is happening right now, but will that happen in a couple of years? So would I prefer to have a computer talking to me and say, this is our diagnosis, this is your probability of uh, getting cured, this is what we're going to do as a machine to fix you because you have a problem and that problem needs to be fixed or to have a human being empathic and talking to you in a nice way. All this is really, really fascinating. But for now, I'm going to ask you again to, if you would like to come back on the podcast, have you back soon, but please tell people where they can follow your work. So um, I'm, I'm um, part of a small research organization called GRAPE. Group for Research in Applied Economics, grape, like, you know, wine grape. Uh, we actually have a logo that looks pretty much like a wine grape. And I would like to invite you to our <laughs> website, grape.org.pl. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, our Facebook handle is grape.org. Our Twitter handle is grape underscore org. So much for technology compatibility, one allows dots and um, so um, I would like to invite you there. We've got uh, some great work on on uh, within job wage inequality by my friend and co-author Lucas van der Pelte. We also look at retirement patterns due to automation and um, people job stability in the context of of, of automation. So please join us in our social media, and you will be able to find more work there. We also study a lot uh, inequality in various contexts. So if you find these topics interesting, be our guest. I'm going to put all these links on the show notes of the podcast. I will make my best to have Joanna back again so that we can continue this conversation. But for now, this was really, really cool. And thank you so much for being in the podcast, Joanna. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for your invitation. I'm back just to remind you that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And if you like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And this is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe Podcast. It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any use that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament 
and or the European Liberal Forum.